2: Stacey Marie Ishmael is no stranger to covering white-collar crime. She's seen companies implode and executives go to prison. But even she found the speed with which FTX collapsed and Sam Beckman-Fried was arrested to be dizzying.
3: I think that looking at the timing from filing for bankruptcy, or even forget filing for bankruptcy, saying, alluding to the fact that they were potentially in distress... Potentially having takeover conversations with Binance to then filing for bankruptcy. And then in the space of about a month after that, being, you know, taken under arrest. That does strike me as an unusually quick process.
2: Stacey Murray is the managing editor for crypto at Bloomberg News. And in a crazy crypto year, SBF's story is undeniably the most bananas.
3: I've often made the joke that a lot of what happens in crypto can feel like it's it's running at the rate of virality. That, you know, something is huge now or trending right now, and then, you know, two seconds later, nobody's talking about it or vice versa. And as a result of that, the past 12 months has sometimes felt like speed running the financial crisis of 2008, where folks would start to have worries about a counterparty or think, hmm, I'm not even sure what is behind the assets of this particular thing or like how highly rated those assets are. But that would take months you know, like to work its way through the system. And in crypto, we're seeing it take not even days, in some cases, just hours. In this
2: case, it took just nine days for FTX to go under. On November 2nd, a report by Coindesk questioned the health of FTX's sister company, Alameda Research. By November 11th, FTX had filed for bankruptcy. And on Tuesday, the U.S. government unsealed charges against Sam Bankman-Fried. This morning, we unsealed an eight-count indictment charging Samuel Bankman-Fried, FTX's founder,
0: with a series of interrelated fraud schemes that contributed to FTX's collapse.
2: Today on the show, the case against SBF. He was once the face of crypto in the U.S. Now, he's facing prison time. And the rest of the crypto industry is trying to make sense of the fallout. If there was one baffling thing that stood out in the month since FTX declared bankruptcy, it was Sam Bankman-Fried's media tour. It was almost like he couldn't stop himself from talking to reporters.
1: Look, I should have been on top of this. And I feel really, really bad and regretful that I wasn't.
2: Apologizing again and again for what happened.
1: I didn't ever uh, try to commit fraud on anyone. I was shocked by what happened this month and, you know, reconstructing it. I, where are there things I wish I had done differently. I was trying to do the best I could. Obviously, that wasn't nearly as good as I thought it was. I mean, look, I, I've had a bad month.
2: The government clearly isn't buying the story that, oops, he messed up. It was an accident. On Tuesday, they unveiled what are essentially three different kinds of charges. You can think of them as split into buckets. From the Justice Department, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission.
3: And so within those three buckets, there's one thing that's very consistent, and it's the idea that over the course of years, you know, supposedly starting as far back as at least 2019, Sam bankman fried did a couple of things that none of these agencies find particularly appropriate. The first being allegedly commingling customer funds or, or and, you know, misusing customer funds for either his other businesses in the kind of the FTX Alameda empire or for personal use. That's one. The other is making mischaracterizations or misrepresentations of certain types of investments and securities And then there's sort of a a third, and I would say this is like a broader bucket that represents a lot of these things, which is really just about misleading people generally Mm. around what you were doing, how you were going to do those things. If you said A, did you do B instead? And you can get into like a lot of finessing as to like why each of these different agencies would all come out with different sets of charges. But I think one of the other things to note is in addition to what they've laid out so far, various of the folks involved have made it clear that these might not be the only ones that we see.
2: Right. There are like some little notes within the the various charging documents that say they've been talking to people, and I kind of love the lawyerly phrase here, of, of persons known and unknown. (laughs) <laughs> so like maybe there there are some other shoes to drop here. That's correct. One of the things I find so striking, and you you nodded to this, is that the the Justice Department and and the SEC say, you know, this goes back years, maybe back to FTX's founding, and that seems so strikingly at odds with the narrative that SBF has has put forth in in many many media interviews on twitter et cetera which is sort of like oops things got out of control and i didn't notice what do you make of that just sharp dissonance
3: i mean i think that's why this is probably going to take years to play out in court it is it's the contrast between the public assertions as you say but also like the marketing the super bowl advertising the arena the stadium rights and what was actually allegedly going on behind the scenes I mean, I remember because this is the kind of thing you do for work. You know, reading the bankruptcy filing um, from the now CEO, former Enron liquidator John J. Ray III, in which you know he had a series of blockbuster and and extremely damning quotes about the the quality of the information that he had access to, you know, he said this was like one of the most disorganized processes he'd ever encountered. He couldn't even get a complete list of people who were on the payroll.
2: That was something Ray highlighted in congressional hearings this week.
3: And he really continued with that message in his testimony on Tuesday, you know, saying, hey, look, I don't know what these folks were doing, but they were approving expenses on Slack and they were using QuickBooks for accounting and they were supposedly a multi-billion dollar
4: business. Uh, this one is unusual, and it's unusual in the sense that literally, you know, there's no record keeping whatsoever. It's in the absence of record keeping. Employees would communicate, you know, invoicing and expenses on on Slack, which is, you know, essentially, a, uh, you know, a way of communicating right. for chat rooms. Uh, they use QuickBooks, a multi-billion dollar company using QuickBooks. Quick QuickBooks? QuickBooks. Uh, Nothing against QuickBooks, it's a very nice tool, just not for a multi-billion dollar company.
2: Right. The QuickBooks thing is really just kind of mind-blowing. I mean, I don't know if you're supposed
3: to laugh in when you're covering bankruptcy, but it's, that was just, it was a wild line. It was, you know, the idea of folks managing money or appearing to manage money for something that's kind of sold to media freelancers.
2: I can't stop thinking about, as I know many people can't, um, an interview with SBF on the Odd Lots podcast where he tries to explain yield farming and and your colleague Matt Levine sort of said, like, this sounds like a Ponzi scheme. And and at the time, you know, those of us who think about this stuff thought, wow, like, that's a great questioning by Matt. This is really interesting. And I have to admit, there was a part of me that thought, gee, maybe this is kind of, kind of over my head. And I keep coming back to that interview, thinking like, "Oh man, was this all a Ponzi scheme?" Because I- in the space of the last month, m- my brain has traveled all over the place in trying to comprehend what exactly happened.
3: I think there are a lot of very highly paid people who are all trying to figure out what exactly happened um, right now. And you know, the funny thing about the odd lots is there are actually two different, for me, equally compelling odd lots interviews mm. and in. One of them, you know, Sam spent a lot of time, Sam bankman fried spent a lot of time talking about how sophisticated the risk engine was for FTX and and Alameda and how that meant they could do like real-time allocations to make sure that they weren't taking on excessive risk. That was also an episode in which he talked a lot about Tether, which is the, the largest stable coin in crypto. And... To me, the reason I mentioned that other episode is because part of what made him appealing and interesting to people appeared to be his grasp of the finer, more complex technical points of crypto. Hmm. And, you know, lots of folks often in hindsight have argued, oh, I should have known he didn't know what he was talking about. And the thing for me is, like, I'm not sure it's the case that he didn't know what he was talking about, right? I I think it's that in a lot of cases, he may well have been saying things that he believed to be true. There were other cases, and my colleagues at Bloomberg have reported on this, where we would ask a direct question, like, can you talk to us about how intermingled Alameda and FTX are? Because we have reporting that would suggest they're basically the same, And then he would say on the record, absolutely not. These are completely separate entities. You know, so I also don't buy the argument that he didn't know in all cases, because there were certainly times when on the record he would deny something to us that turned out later to be true. But I do think that this is a person who liked talking. I think this is a person who often was playing the role of I'm a crypto CEO. And I'm going to behave in certain types of ways, whether it's from the outfit choices that he would make or, you know, the whole thing about appearing to shun like fanciness in general. I'm not going to comb my hair because I'm, I'm too focused on the work. And I think all of that was really part of a particular kind of narrative that worked until it stopped working.
2: It all stopped working, as we've noted, incredibly quickly and the speed with which it unraveled does make me wonder. And I, I wanted to put this to you as someone who has covered white-collar crime before. When something happens this fast, it makes me wonder: did someone flip on him?
3: I think one of the things to, to go back to your point about, you know, persons known and unknown, that is striking is the complete absence of any other named co-defendants in. Any of the you know the three sets of charges that we've seen so far, either from the Department of Justice or the SEC or the CFTC. Because Noble one person runs an empire made up of more than a hundred different entities, which is the number of different FTX-related entities that filed for bankruptcy in November. And so you could extrapolate a couple of things. One, that cooperators exist. There are going to be people who are engaging in some kind of testimony or handing over of evidence, whether because they are compelled by subpoena to do so or because they think it's in their best interest. And two, again, as the various folks involved in these charges
2: have made clear, because we haven't seen the end of this story yet. There's also the question of political donations. SBF was a leading Democratic fundraiser, personally giving some $40 million in the last election cycle, mostly to Democrats and left-leaning causes though he's now said he also gave to Republicans, just without publicizing it.
3: The the fact of the matter is, Bankman-Fried, along with other people who, again, have not been charged with anything, but who were also executives at FTX, donated very large sums of money to various politicians, to various political causes— as well as, as we know, to nonprofit organizations and media organizations. So, you know, there was a lot of money slushing around out there. And I think there's a big, open, scary question if you're a politician around, is some of that going to get clawed back?
2: Bankman-Fried was supposed to testify to Congress on Tuesday of this week. But by that time, he was in jail in the Bahamas. Instead, lawmakers got to hear from the man whose job it is to dispose of FTX's remains. When we talk about politics, we obviously have to talk about the the hearings on Capitol Hill this week, and you alluded to some of the like perfectly tailored sound bites we heard from John Ray, who took over FTX to to clean up this mess.
4: This is really old fashioned embezzlement. This is just taking money from customers and using it for your own purpose.
2: Really old fashioned embezzlement. Is is quite a statement. I wonder, you know, what what those statements before Congress, like what, what does that tell you about either the task in front of Ray or what law enforcement is able to look at and build their case with?
3: I mean, I think going in the task in front of Ray was always going to be non-trivial. You don't lose $10 billion, whether because you mislabeled the accounts or something more nefarious, as has been alleged, and then bring somebody in and be like, hey, you know, shake out some couch and $10 billion <laughs> will appear. That was going to be a hard, hard set of tasks, no matter what. Um, I do think that the perspective that Ray has is interesting. You know, again, he was the person who was brought in to try to, find any salvageable assets in the aftermath of Enron yeah. and get those assets out to people so on the law enforcement question that is a that is a, a a much more challenging one not least because you're dealing with jurisdictions outside of the United States as well right so you know the reality of FTX is that it FTX International specifically is that it was domiciled not in the United States but in the Bahamas The Bahamas regulators have made it very clear that they don't think that the way that the US appointed folks are handling this case is necessarily how the Bahamas would do it. So you've got like that jurisdictional spat shaping up. And then you have a series of other entities like FTX Japan, which is itself trying to make the argument that like, hey, those shenanigans over there. Nothing to do with us. <laughs> Please let us handle our creditors the way that we see fit. Uh, you know, a similar argument from SEX Europe. So I, I think that even if you were coming at this from the perspective of crypto companies by default are complicated, you layer all of this on top of it. And it is it is quite a challenge.
2: Well, that leads me to sort of two big questions that have been hanging out there for me, which is when do you think we might have a sense of Actually, how much money we're talking about? How big this financial hole is? And then, secondary to that, will customers ever get their money back? I think on
3: both of those fronts, it was striking to consider what John J. Ray said in that hearing on Tuesday, which was basically,
4: "Don't keep your hopes up." Look, I, you know, at the end of the day, we're not going to be able to recover all the losses here. Right? Uh, money was spent that we'll never get back. There will be losses on the international side. We're hopeful on the U.S. side. Um, he'll answer to others related to what happened here. Our job is just to you know, find the assets and try to get customers their money back as quickly as possible.
3: And if, if you're an FTX customer, that is a really demoralizing position to be in. You know, he yeah. said it seems likely that folks in the U.S., have a better chance of getting some of their money back. Maybe the situation seems to be worse for customers outside who you know did not have accounts with FTX US. I think one of the things that he did fairly effectively is paint a picture of chaos, right? It's not that there was a hidey hole that, you know, someone shoved in a corner and it was like, don't look here because that's where all the money is. It's more like it was, it's been really hard for him and the other folks tasked with unraveling the situation to even identify where to start.
2: And I believe, just for for context here, that people are still trying to get their money back from the Mount Gox collapse, which was what, 2014?
3: Right, exactly. And, you know, Mount Gox is, I think, uh, a useful comparison because it was... For for a lot of people, the first really large collapse of a crypto exchange circumstances were very different, but there are really thorny questions around, okay, you're going to get your money back. Does that mean you're going to get back what your Bitcoin would have been worth in 2014? which is not a lot of money, (laughs) Um, or what it's worth now, which is potentially significantly more because of some of the price appreciations, would it have been the value at the time that you put it in or the time that you would have been able to withdraw it? You know, and that's that's just a, a pure up and down valuation question. And that's only one of thousands of kinds of questions that are facing the folks who are dealing with what happened to FTX.
2: When we come back, Should we worry about this whole thing spreading? Or is the fire around FTX contained?
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
3: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
0: After FTX collapsed
2: and Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested, other exchanges were at pains to reassure their customers that they were solvent. Just this week, the exchange Binance released a report intended to show that it had reserves on hand. But it was not the kind of audited statement you might see from a regulated bank. When you look at all of the the drama surrounding FTX but also kind of the larger crypto ecosystem in the past several weeks, I wonder where you think this leaves the other big centralized exchanges.
3: So FTX was not the largest by any means of the crypto exchanges. It was a, it was decently sized, but the largest by far is a crypto exchange called Binance. And Binance, which we mentioned earlier, because they were the ones who for a second looked like might buy FTX when it became clear that FTX was in distress. So you have have Binance, which is the, the biggest of them all, and that's been true for a long time. In the US, there's only one publicly traded crypto exchange, and that's Coinbase, who also known for Super Bowl advertising, still significantly smaller than Binance in terms of both like number of customers, but also volumes. And folks have had a lot of questions over the past, I would say six months. So like long before the FTX bankruptcy, which is how is everyone doing? Because over the past six months, you've had, you know, a series of crypto crises, a general decline in market prices, a waning of sentiment that has weighed on things that were popular, like non-fungible tokens or NFTs. And so folks were like, you know, just as businesses, how are these folks going? And one of the things that has happened over the past several months is, you know, Coinbase, as well as some other exchanges, like with names like Kraken, have Hmm. had to lay off a lot of their employees So in a sense, they were buffeted by the same kind of macroeconomic forces that have led other tech companies to lay off their employees. Folks have been asking, you know, are these people well capitalized? If something else were to go really, really wrong, are they going to be all right? And that has led to a lot of calls for increased transparency. How do we know that you have the money that you say you have? How do we know that you have the crypto that you say you have?
2: Right, because unlike banks, these guys do not have to keep, you know, tier one capital reserves, etc. Exactly. There is no, you know... There's no Dodd-Frank here. <laughs> <laughs> Love a
3: Dodd-Frank reference. No, there's there's no Dodd-Frank. There's nobody, like, shaking a big stick marked auditor at them, on, how, except for Coinbase, which, again, is a publicly traded financial institution and therefore does have a higher bar for the regulations that apply to it, but it's not regulated like a bank because it's not a bank. And, you know, so I think the questions facing Binance and Coinbase and Kraken and all these other folks are ones they have really tried to tackle head on. And, you know, so there's been an outbreak of reassuring memos and blog posts and tweets being like, this is how we're, this is, we're fine. This is how you know we're fine. No, really, we're totally fine. Which of course sometimes has the effect of making people more worried. So it's a bit of a vicious cycle.
2: The the speed of the stories coming out about the crypto industry is is pretty intense. I mean, I just to cite kind of a fascinating one to me, the New York Times ran a piece that the executives of the big exchanges were all in like a signal group chat together, <laughs> which has just has this thing of like, oh my God, these things are worth billions of dollars, and yet these guys are all texting. Maybe lends to the idea that this is an impenetrable world that people just don't understand. So,
3: first of all, kudos to the New York Times. That was a good scoop. And I'm annoyed by how good it was because I would have really <laughs> liked it. Um, but I, I, I think I have two observations here. Yeah. One is most CEOs are in touch with their peers. Hmm. You know, media CEOs are like hanging out in Sun Valley or wherever it is that they go to. Or having dinner parties or playing golf. Again, like I'm clearly not a media CEO, but I imagine <laughs> that golf is a thing that some of them would do. So, so I don't think it's that unusual that you have folks using the technologies that they're most comfortable with and like Signal, Telegram, these are like very crypto e. Type chat platforms like media CEOs would have probably had like an assistant contact another assistant and book a dinner or something. Um, what I do think was revelatory about the content of the message in the times was the again, that that sort of thin-skinned competitiveness, where it was like, dude, why are you trying to screw the rest of us over?
2: Was right, don't tweet about my exchange. <laughs> You're hurting us. Exactly. Yeah.
3: Right. It was it was the sort of a very sharp. You know, sharp elbowed tenor to that conversation that again felt very, very personal, right? Mm-hmm. It felt to me that this wasn't just people who were competing with each other. You got the impression that they actively didn't really like each other
2: as well. So Binance's CEO, Cheng Peng Zhao, CZ, to, to, to most people who follow this stuff, you mentioned turbulent times ahead. And and you all at Bloomberg recently had a a, a podcast about how crypto investors are feeling right now. And I guess I wonder, like, are people spooked? What's the vibe?
3: Depends on who you ask, is always the <laughs> is always the answer to that question in crypto. Um, the the Bitcoin true believers have recently adopted a refrain of one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. And what they mean by that is, you know, ignore all the noise if you believe that Bitcoin is the future, however many Bitcoin you had last September is. You know, those are still Bitcoin. They might be worth a lot less if you convert them into fiat, but converting them into fiat is not the point. The point is that you believe in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Hmm. That's one approach. Another approach is the people who are like, this is really boring. I can't make any money here anymore, (laughs) Uh, you know, because there was a fair amount of activity in the market that was really speculation and arbitrage. And you could still make money in a declining market, for sure. There are all kinds of trades that you could do. It's actually a lot harder to make money when there's not a lot of stuff happening, right? When you have prices being what, you know, my fellow folks in finance and business media like to call range bound.
2: What does that mean in English? <laughs>
3: range bound is like, you know, if if the price of Bitcoin is, is either at... $17,000 or $16,500, you don't have a lot of opportunity to make a bunch of money if the only fluctuation is $500 at a time. Mm. You have the opportunity to make a bunch of money if it's pinging back and forth between, say, $12,500 and $20,000. Like, there's a lot more stuff that you can do. And so the idea of range-bound is essentially, this is too chill for me to be able to profit on this. But then, you know, I think much more importantly than either of those two constituencies are the people who really got hurt. They are the people who had their life savings in Celsius or who had, you know, assets tied up on FTX US or in Voyager or who had invested in crypto because a celebrity told them that this was a good idea or they bought a board ape because it looked to them like these prices could only ever go up a lot of people have lost a lot of money. Some of the people who've lost a lot of money can afford to, loo- to lose a lot of money, but I don't think that's true for everybody.
2: You know, another constituency here, and we talked a bit about the congressional hearings, but a constituency here o- overall is Congress. And Congress has been very slow to figure out how, if at all, they would like to deal with crypto But something that is high profile and blows up, and then potentially something where you might have a constituent who loses money, that tends to get their attention. I wonder what you think the temperature is in Washington right now for for conversations about regulating crypto. Tense.
3: (laughs) Um, That is the vibe that I'm certainly getting from my colleagues who cover the Hill very closely and who are there every single day but I also wouldn't say that it's necessarily straightforward. And that's something you would have certainly gotten a flavor of from the hearings on Tuesday and then additional Mm -hmm. hearings on Wednesday, which is crypto still has a lot of fans in DC. There are still lawmakers, there are still legislators who think that there's a, a tremendous amount of potential financial innovation that can be unlocked using the blockchain. There are still folks who think that you know, crypto is a good way to ramp people into financial inclusion who may be underbanked or unbanked. And then there are people on the other end who are like, this is the worst thing that anyone has ever invested in, you know, invented. I'm, I'm disappointed that you're even talking to me about this because it's terrible and it's a scam and everything's bad.
2: People like California Democrat Brad Sherman, who in the hearing touted that he was the only lawmaker to get an F from the only crypto organization that rates members of Congress.
4: My fear is that we'll view Sam Bankman-Fried as just one big snake in a crypto garden of Eden. The fact is, crypto is a garden of snakes.
3: And then there are folks in between. So I don't think that, you know, consensus has shifted entirely in one direction or another. But I do think that some folks who may have been particularly gung-ho might be a little bit more tempered now. And folks who were already sure that crypto was the worst thing ever have doubled down on that
2: belief. Maybe there is no way to answer this question right now, but I just keep wondering. And admittedly, I have wondered throughout the the various crypto meltdowns that we have seen over the past six months. But I've wondered if this is an inflection point and and if it is, how big an inflection point it is for crypto.
3: I mean, the thing with that question is crypto is constantly facing inflection points. You know, if if we look at when to go back to, to Coinbase, the only publicly traded exchange in the United States, them going public was a huge moment for folks who believed that crypto's time had finally come. Like here was the most mainstream financy thing you could possibly do which was sell shares to the general public. And this crypto company had achieved that. Then you had the potential inflection point of, you know, in the U.S. at least, it was finally possible to buy ETFs backed by Bitcoin
2: futures. Exchange traded funds for for non-finance people. For a certain proportion of
3: people who their compliance department, say, would not let them hold Bitcoin directly. That was a really attractive solution, right? So if you're like a pension fund, for example, with billions of dollars in capital to put to work, and you really wanted to put some of that to work in crypto, you would not necessarily be able to convince anybody that buying Bitcoin directly was a good idea. But you could buy a Bitcoin-backed futures exchange-traded fund, and you wouldn't get into too much trouble, probably. You then had a series of Negative inflection points, you had the collapse of the Terra USC algorithmic stablecoin and the associated token Luna, which precipitated the collapse of a formerly well-respected hedge fund called Three Arrows Capital.
2: And I would say that took a lot of collateral damage along with it. <laughs> collateral damage is a good way of putting it, indeed. So,
3: you know, I'm thinking about this in terms of like the ups and downs of a Bitcoin price chart, <laughs> huh. overlaying it on top or overlaying these news events on top of it. What has been surprising to a lot of observers is actually the resilience of crypto prices despite these extremely negative headline events. There were predictions from folks that, you know, oh, whoa, Bitcoin is going to go to $8,000 by the end of the year. It hit $18,000 this week. It's not at (laughs) $65,000 or anywhere close to where it was trading last year and earlier in this year. But it still hasn't careened off of a cliff in the way that some of the more skeptical folks would have predicted it would have. So you're a little more sanguine. I think I think that's my job. <laughs> I think my my job as a reporter and an editor is to observe, ask questions, hopefully sufficiently challenging questions, and then you know say like, hey, this is what's happening and this is our, this is our best understanding of why these things are happening and the dynamics that are driving it. You know, the f- the phrase that we use a lot is, it's our job to be rigorously skeptical. It's not our job to be nihilistic and it's not our job to be PR. Our job is in between. It's like, what's, what's actually happening and how can we help people understand what's actually happening?
2: Stacey Marie Ishmael, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Stacey Marie Ishmael is the managing editor of Crypto for Bloomberg. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're a fan of the show, I have a little request for you become a Slate Plus member. You can just head on over to slate.com whatnextplus to sign up. You get all your Slate podcasts without ads, and it makes a lovely holiday gift. All right, we will be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.